The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, April 17th, 2018. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Today in Taint Team News, we go to CBS This Morning. Michael Cohen and President Trump are not going to decide what is privileged here. Ultimately, either a Taint Team, a special master, and a court will make that decision. Or perhaps not. Perhaps it won't be either the special master or the Taint Team. Perhaps the special master will be put in charge of the Taint Team, which could sound a little something like this. Welcome, counselors. You're working hard, stopping your client from being disbarred. You're lucky to be free if temporarily the same can still be said for Sean Hannity. Bum, bum, bum. Master of the taint, I think that you will find Cohen's not exactly a great legal mind. Master of the taint, your client's number three. You couldn't pay a porn star enough hush money. Okay, okay. Master of the taint aside, I want to discuss a frequent talking point about Michael Cohn. He's widely derided as a, a bungler, a bumbler, a stooge, a fool, a dupe, a rube, a dullard, a mope, a mook. And yet, what does the media call him? A fixer. Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer. What has he fixed? If Bob Vila were this level of fixer, we'd have dozens and dozens of people dead in house collapses all over New England. And not just people, viewers like you. And here's another thing about the alleged fixer that grinds my gears. It has been widely reported about Cohen's denial. Well, his, the allegation that he visited Prague, then the denial. Now it's newly being alleged again or Mueller has information that it really happened. This is what they say about him. Mr. Cohen denied taking the trip to Prague. Going so far as to tweet, I have never been to Prague in my life. Hashtag fake news and providing a picture of his passport. Maybe you heard someone say that. What they don't say is that it was the cover of his passport. How about tweeting the pages with the stamps? This is like a cheating husband denying the affair by showing his wife his cell phone, but just the home screen. No, don't go into text and definitely not Snapchat. Also, Prague is in the EU's Schengen area, so you could go between Prague and Germany. You don't have to enter through Prague. Also, a person could have multiple passports. Also, a private plane could land there and not get an actual physical stamp. But before we even get there, the media has this other line of argument as regards the bumbling barrister, the inept attorney, the fumble-fisted fixer. It's this old chestnut that Cohen's big mistake was trying to cover up nefarious actions, not the nefarious actions themselves. This is uh, from the March 10th revelation that Cohen used a home equity line to pay off Stormy Daniels. I mean, this is one of those circumstances, I think, where the cover-up is almost worse than the crime. Same sentiment again on the Lawrence O'Donnell show. Quit with this innocent person approach. It's not going to work. The, um, there are times when the cover-up is worse than the crime, but if grandma's dead body is lying livid, rigid in the bathtub upstairs, the crime is worse than the cover-up. <laughs> Guys, the reason a cover-up might seem worse than the crime is because you didn't get away with the cover-up. God, this infuriates me. Look, there's a universe of misdeeds, some we know about. How do we know about them? Because of an unsuccessful cover-up. 
And we could start railing about the cover-ups, but think about all the crimes we don't know about. A huge, potentially limitless universe of crimes that we never hear about because the cover-up worked. The cover-up was much more successful than even the crime. The problem with the maladroit Mr. Cohen, who had three clients, misspelled the name of one and burned the other two yesterday, is that if you put him in charge, of course the crime is going to come out. So we should change the cliche to the cover-up is always worse than the crime, provided you put Michael Cohen in charge of the cover-up. On the show today, I spiel about Stormy Daniels and the sketch artist. It's a Nancy Drew type mystery. But first, a big trial said to be on the side of consumers, AT&T trying to acquire Time Warner, your Department of Justice trying to stop them. There was a time when cable companies were among the most profitable businesses on the planet. With few competitors, they could charge whatever they wanted, and we just had to pay. But within the last few years, cord cutting and the use of the internet as a way to sort of avoid TV, that's threatened the hegemony of companies like Cox and Comcast and Verizon and also companies like Dish and DirecTV. Okay, so that's one thing that's going on. Keep that in mind. We have behemoths threatened. We have services like Hulu and Netflix on the rise. So let's say you're AT&T. What do you do? AT&T owns DirecTV. They also have an internet TV service. If you add it all up, they're the biggest multi-channel video service provider in America. Their phone network on top of that too. So if you're AT&T, do you sit pretty? Do you hope to stay on top? No, you pounce. You buy Time Warner, which means you're acquiring TBS, TNT, CNN, This is, or would be, a big deal, but what it also is, is vertical integration. And vertical integration is like when the car company buys the tire manufacturer. It could be two big companies, but they're not direct competitors. What Time Warner did, or does, and what AT&T does are two different things. And usually, the government doesn't try to stop a merger if it's a vertical merger. There is one problem. Donald Trump hates CNN. CNN is Time Warner. He spoke against the deal on the campaign trail, and now that he's in office, the Justice Department is in court trying to block it. So maybe the the motivation is less than pure, but it does seem from court proceedings that there might actually be a decent argument against this merger, even if Donald Trump is also on the side of that argument. Here now is Brent Kendall. He's a legal affairs reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's been covering the case. Hey, Brent, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. So was this on your radar before the Justice Department actually brought its case? And am I getting the conventional wisdom about right? It was on my radar ahead of time. I think I would quibble with a couple of the things you said at the outset. I mean, I only said a couple things. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, this this notion that that the president has great sway over over the department, obviously, I mean, you know, people at the department would would dispute that. They're deeply resistant to any suggestion that politics played a role here at all. 
And as far as you know, the government not interceding on vertical deals, it is true that we haven't had an actual trial like this, a full-on legal challenge to a vertical deal for like 40 years. But it has been the case. There have been a bunch of vertical deals where the government did force changes to them. But you know, in those circumstances, the way it's normally gone is the department would say, hey, we think we've got some problems with this deal here, but if you if you do X, Y, and Z, we will allow it to go forward. Right. So, here, so, so let me amend the, uh, the part yep. where I said didn't face scrutiny. Would normally yep. go through the channels where the government might say, you know what, shed a division, or you know what, uh, spin that part of the company off and then we'll be fine. And these huge right. companies know that that's the cost of doing business and everyone gets their uh, pound of flesh. But this, right. is, this is a full-on trial. This is a full-on trial. I mean, look, you know, this is a huge, it's one of the biggest mergers ever. It was always going to get a close look. I don't think anybody ever thought it was just going to be sort of waved through. And there are a lot of complex issues and a rapidly changing media industry for people to look at. And, you know, the current crop of enforcers, this group is pushing for sort of the kind of asset shedding that I, I think you mentioned. They wanted some changes to the deal and, and AT&T didn't want to make any kinds of changes to the deal because it didn't feel like it needed to. And, you know, that's basically how we ended up where we are now. Right. And it probably isn't totally true to say it was a totally vertical merger. I mean, both these companies have uh, arms and do business that, you know, are pretty similar to each other, right? Well, you know, I mean, look, they operate in, in, in different segments of the same industry. So, you know, it, I mean, it is a pretty classic vertical question for this case is, you know, AT&T's got direct TV. And so it competes with all these distributors. And, you know, if it gets Time Warner and gets all this programming, then what happens to rivals who also need the programming that AT&T just purchased? And so, you know, for several weeks in court now, that's basically what a whole bunch of lawyers and witnesses have been arguing about. It seems to me that a lot of the argument is looking at the rivals now, so seeing would, you know, Comcast have an advantage or would Dish Network be at a disadvantage, but it's against the backdrop of Hulu and Netflix and all these streaming services that might just upend whatever uh, assumptions we're making about the media. It could be that in 10 years uh, without this deal, the current behemoths, if they don't have the programming, will be left behind. Well, you know, and I I think that's a feature of their argument. I mean, A, they do say, look, you know, you can't really say what this industry is going to look like in a few years. Look how rapidly things are changing already, and you just can't make these kind of predictions. DOJ on the other side says, look, Netflix and services like that are still basically complementary services to like traditional pay TV and that that's not going to go away anytime in the in the near future. Right, right. I understand why that would be the argument. But if the if the discussion is being had about now and what the landscape looks like now, you might come up with a different decision than if you take in a model of where it looks like a reasonable expert might forecast the industry to be going. Well, so that's one challenge with these cases in general that makes um, antitrust law different than, than basically any other segment of the law, right? I mean, you go to a normal court case or the government brings a normal case and you're looking at some conduct that's already happened. Mm-hmm. And so antitrust is an entirely different exercise because it's predictive. You know, the government has the burden of proof here. But, that, you know, Judge Leon, Judge Richard Leon, who's got this case, I mean, at times has clearly seemed uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, he's being asked to basically figure out to some extent what the future is going to look like. And I mean, he's even said at trial a couple times, look, I don't have a 
crystal ball here. Right, right. It seems to me that, yes, of course, no one has a crystal ball, duh. But it seems that even a non-crystal ball kind of conservative prediction, and granted, it's still a prediction, would lead someone to believe that cord cutting is going to become a more common occurrence than a less common occurrence. I mean, that's not an assumption that's being kind of priced into the decision. Well, so there was a lot of debate about cord cutting this week. I mean, both sides acknowledge that there is a certain amount of cord cutting going on and that, you know, it will increase over time. And I I think this matters in the predictive process here because if, in fact, there's an acceleration of cord cutting. I mean, and this is basically what the what the AT&T crowd is arguing is that, you know, if more and more people cord cut, then that means less and less new people are going to come over to DirecTV. You know, there's some weird tensions in here for AT&T, right? Because right, they right, want... because what they they tell, right? Don't they t- don't they sell their stock as, "Hey, we got a handle on cord cutting. It's maybe not as bad as you'd be led to believe." But then they're at trial saying, "We got to do this or cord cutting's going to kill us." <laughs> Exactly, because you know, they, on, on the one hand, they do say that their traditional pay TV business is strong and that they can keep it strong, and that this merger will help them, you know, meet some of these transform, transformative challenges. But they, you know, they still believe in pay TV. So, um, you know, if, if too many people cut the cord, that's a problem for them. You know, there's some other yeah. funny tensions in this case. For example, another big empirical issue that comes up is, is, is you know, just how many people would switch providers if they couldn't get some of the channels that they want. Right. And, you know, and one of the things AT&T has argued is, you know, Judge, do you realize just how hard it is to get rid of your cable provider? You know, you got to call somebody up and you wait on the phone for 15 minutes to try to schedule an appointment and then they got to come to your house and turn it off and you've got to turn in all the, all your satellite equipment and everything else. And, you know, I'm quite sure those are not the sorts of arguments they would be making in some ad to consumers. That is funny. And you do have to do all those things, or you could just be born past 1980, in which case the assumption is, why would I have cable in the first place? And um, how important, like, has it come out? What are the big channels, cable channels that Time Warner has? Is CNN even more important than we ever thought of? Or am I overlooking TBS? I mean, there's been some talk about CNN. Um, There's been a lot of talk about TNT and TBS, mostly. CNN, CNN has become a more important network again since Trump won the White House. But for TBS and TNT, they both hold collectively hold important sports rights. I mean, and that's the one area, of course, um, that cuts against some of the cord cutting and that we're, we're live TV, there's still not much of a substitute for. And I mean, there's been a ton of talk at this trial about March Madness, and it's been convenient for the government because this trial had been taking place in the middle of the NCAA basketball tournament. Right. And, a lot, and a lot of those games were on uh, TBS and TNT. I mean, look, we're not fighting in this trial over whether AT&T holding Turner Classic Movies is going to be the kind of thing that cripples Verizon or Charter or anything like that. So, I mean, it is, it is mostly TNT, TBS, and, and CNN. So, you're not, so the True TV Practical Joker show has not come up at trial, is what you're saying? The True TV Practical Joker show has not come up at trial. So let's circle back to Donald Trump, and I will, I'll take under advisement the arguments that the Justice Department does what the Justice Department does, independent of the president. But it has been argued in court, things that, things that Trump said on the campaign trail, that, that has been brought up, right? Well, so, you know, the funny thing is that's kind of disappeared completely. I mean, there was a lot of questions leading up to trial, how much of a political thing AT&T would want to make out of this or whether they'd just be better off sticking to the, you know, the main facts of the case and trying to win it on those grounds. But there was a big pretrial fight about whether AT&T and Time Warner could, could take discovery, you know, sort of 
get documents and, and information from the government. Not about the network, any, the legal process. Yes, I understand. Right. Yeah. They wanted access to any discussions that might have happened between the White House and the DOJ and, and things like that. I mean, and as you can imagine, uh, the, the government was, was, was not keen on that. You know, so A, they say that there weren't those kind of discussions. B, I mean, and this would not be particular to this administration. I mean, you know, they zealously guard their internal communications and don't want to sort of set a precedent of letting private parties have access to those. And so, you know, the judge basically shut that down and said, you know, AT&T, you're not getting, you're not going to take this kind of discovery. The government doesn't have to go search its files and, and, and let you know if there were any emails on any remotely related topic between the White House and the DOJ on this. And, and what Judge Leon said on that is, you know, that, they, that there's a really high bar before you can sort of try to get those types of communications and make this an issue. And that AT&T couldn't show that it had been singled out for, you know, unusual treatment that it should it should be allowed to do this. So if this merger were to go through, it would be one of the biggest media mergers ever. It wouldn't touch the let's let's note this with irony. It wouldn't touch the uh, AOL acquisition of Time Warner back in 2000 disastrous acquisition, essentially. And there are other non-media uh, acquisitions that are bigger down DuPont. But if it were blocked, would it be the biggest merger ever blocked by the Justice Department? The biggest merger block. I mean, in term, in terms of raw dollars. I mean, I don't know what. I mean, in terms of raw dollars, it's one of the biggest mergers ever. Anyway, so I mean, it would certainly be one of the biggest if the court blocked it. Yes, I mean, the DOJ preceding this administration won several really big merger cases the last several years. So they've been kind of on a roll. You know, and of course, when when Comcast wanted to buy Time Warner Cable. That one died before we even got to a court case because they abandoned. So, you know, I mean, obviously, look, there's a ton riding on this for AT&T and Time Warner. And there's a ton riding on it for the Justice Department, both because it's, you know, it's the first big case for the for the Trump people, you know, the appointees who were there. But, you know, more broadly speaking, you know, if, if they were to lose this, I mean, it sort of pretty quickly ends this kind of momentum they've built in these sort of cases over over recent years. And, you know, and that could have some some longer term effects down the road. Yeah. Well, it's good to see the DOJ's track record. Let's also note my cable bill is still one hundred thirty goddamn dollars a month. So there's that. Brent Kendall is the legal affairs reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He's been following this huge trial. Thank you so much, Brent. Uh, it's good talking to you. Thanks. And now the spiel. Michael Avenatti seems every bit the schlocky showman needed for these times. Today, he stood before the appellate division. <laughs> now he was on The View. At issue was a police artist sketch of the man who threatened Stormy Daniels. Stormy, you recently sat down with a forensic artist, a very well-known one, um, who created a sketch of the alleged suspect based on your memory from that day. And now you're ready to reveal that sketch for the first time. Can we take a look at that sure. with you? And there it is. I gotta say, the moment doesn't really work on radio slash podcasts. So the guy looks like, you know, some people say Tom Brady. I think a little like Tom Brady dressed as Bill Belichick because he's wearing a hoodie. He's a hood. He's in a hoodie. I get it. Other people saying he looks a little like Bon Jovi. I don't know. Does he look like Bon Jovi? I mean, I personally have seen a million faces that look like this guy and I've rocked them all. But I was interested more in the claim before they went to the actual sketch, the famous sketch artist. 
And there, if you look at the picture, there are two sets of words. One is copyright Michael Avenatti Esquire, meaning any use or reuse of this sketch of a swept hair hoodlum without the express written consent of Michael Avenatti is strictly prohibited. But also is the word Lois. Lois is Lois Gibson. She is the subject of this headline in today's Houston Chronicle. Famous Houston sketch artist drawn into Stormy Daniels case. Ooh, local angle. Also, ooh, pun. Lois Gibson works with the Houston Police Department in Harris County, Texas, and she holds a world record for the most identifications by a forensic artist, the Houston Chronicle said. And that claim about the world record which is a Guinness world record, is also on her personal website and on Lois Gibson's Wikipedia page. The sketch artist has a Wikipedia page because she is famous. Oh, however do I get to sit for such a great artist? You must be highborn or else a great beauty or possibly have been alleged to have held up El Dorado wine and liquor on the corner of Delano and Navigation Boulevard. Lois has set the Guinness records for most convictions based on her sketches. In 2017, it says that her visionary talent has helped to positively identify 751 criminals and secure 1,000 convictions. Now, normally, I'd be impressed. And I have seen her sketches side by side with the person they caught. And I got to say, sometimes they do kind of look like the person. You know, composite sketch artistry in exact science. But I am fairly skeptical when it comes to greater Houston area police forensic statistics, especially the counting stats, if you will. Because if you know anything, in Houston, they have a high conviction rate. But part of that is that once they arrest the guy, they tend not to let his actual guilt or innocence get in the way of a conviction. The Houston Crime Lab is notorious for its, well, let's say bungles. And I only say that because that's one of the verbs in the many, many headlines about the Houston Crime Lab. A couple of years ago, they had 200 faulty convictions for drug tests that were improperly concocted. I was looking at some coverage of the Houston Crime Lab and the Houston Chronicle, and my God, it just goes on and on. In 2011, HPD, Houston Police Department, Crime Lab faces more heat. Former supervisor testifies she quit over accuracy of alcohol tests. 2009, Prince and Problems, HPD's fingerprint scandal. Earlier in 2009, another crime lab bungle surfaces. Prosecutors ask that man who spent 22 years in prison be freed. January 2008, HPD again shuts down crime lab's DNA unit. 2007, HPD lab analyst indicted on theft tampering charges. There are like eight more of these from murder and rape convictions thrown out to 2006. A near total breakdown, says two supervisors, 2005. HPD analysts faked drug evidence in four cases. DNA evidence destroyed. Earlier, retired officials cite a train wreck. And I'll read from an NBC News report if there is any one place that epitomizes America's long overdue reckoning with a broken justice system. It is Harris County, Texas. For three years running, the number of exonerations nationwide has climbed hitting a record of 166 in 2016. Over that time, more than a quarter of those have come out of Harris County alone. I have no doubt 
that Lois Gibson is a true professional and good at her job, but I cannot get behind a big conviction number when that number has anything to do with the Houston Police Department. In Houston, the police always get their man, even when their man shouldn't have been got. I have no idea about the culpability of this Tom Brady slash Bon Jovi slash young William Defoe figure, but that picture of him is not the only thing that's sketchy. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA Just Producer is ready with a handshake and an open palm. Mary Wilson, Just Senior Producer, known to tell a saucy tale and make a little stir. Steve Lichtai, Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts, argued for Run DMC and Taint Master Jay, but I rapped yesterday. I shall not rap two days in a row. The Just bring you inside the huddle for all your Taint Team news. And now get your personalized Taint Team beer koozie from Gist.com. Let your Taint Team colors fly. You can be the master of your own taint. Oomperu, deperu, duperu. And thanks for listening.